this is a Medea Vox podcast. My name is Bella Brodman Wengerfeld, and today I have a guest, professor in social communication, Mario Lauristin from University of Tartu, but also a member of European Parliament. Welcome. Hello. The experiences that you have and you bring with you are pretty unique. In our today's podcast, I would like to talk about uh, how does one become an academic in a very difficult times and in a very difficult country in Soviet Estonia? And how does then one academic become a politician, moving between parliaments of Moscow, Tallinn and Brussels? And how do those three parliamentary experiences compare if they do compare? Yeah, and at first uh, I have to confess that I am very, very, very old person. <laughs> I was born in 1940. Really, it was a year when Estonia was occupied by Soviet Union. I was born in free Estonia. I was uh, in free Estonia first three months of my life. <laughs> and, and then it was occupied. We were inside Soviet Union behind the Iron Curtain. And uh, I'm very sorry to say that we disappeared, for example, even for Sweden, which is our very close neighbor. We practically disappeared. Still, um, Swedes uh, met a lot of Estonians who fled from Soviet Union uh, in 1944 in small boats in stormy third week of September took this very dangerous trip, and many of them really drowned in Baltic Sea, but, but uh, more, they, they were happy to be here and very well received by, by, by Sweden. Maybe in every second Estonian family you have some relatives or good friends who are Swedish now. <laughs> From this context uh, in Estonia, we got also knowledge about the life outside of uh, the Soviet Union. The other source was Finnish television, because um, if you imagine that uh, our capital Tallinn is in 80 kilometers from Helsinki, then in this time when television started in 1958, it was practically impossible to jam television signals. Because if the Soviets would start to jam Helsinki television, then Finns also could not see that. <laughs> and though we had direct access to Finnish television. And I suppose that was a very important part of our lives, because we had this kind of comparison, which is really unique. I um, tried to explain to my Swedish friends when I was first time in Sweden and met Estonians living here. They have been cut off from, from Estonia for a very long time. And they didn't imagine our life there. And I said that we have a privilege. We were used to look with both eyes because one eye was looking, watching Moscow television, another eye was watching Finnish television. And so we had this much more realistic picture. And why I'm talking about that? Because uh, uh, that why maybe was one reason why, why I started to study in university journalism and media. Because in our lives then, in this close society, this opportunity to have through media access to the, the other kind of society, it was really so important. Also, in general, this Finnish link, Finnish gate to free 
so-called free world. For Estonians, it was very, very important also the, because of language, as we can we can understand Finnish without learning. Through television, all kids started to speak Finnish, but we also had in, in university Finnish language uh, and uh, that gave us opportunity to to get access to also to scientific literature from the west though when uh, i was writing my uh, undergraduate thesis then uh, i could already read finnish media literature we had first uh, first contact with uh, university in finland uh, in 1970 after that it became quite regular to exchange uh, with them, and that was our secret language because uh, Soviets who used Russian, they were not capable to understand what we were talking about or, or what what is written in the journals. They looked at oh, there is science, and they had quite some kind of respect towards science. And oh, this science. Though so, so we got, for example, Finnish journals of sociology, or media. Uh, we got Finnish translations of uh, most important uh, Western literature. For example, I read my Bourdieu first time in Finnish. I read my Habermas first time in Finnish. <laughs> and uh, and that really was uh, was very, very important opportunity. These uh, Finnish contacts allowed us uh, in Tartu University who were studying journalism and started to to be interested in research also to use the same methodologies because Finns were very active in, for example, in audience research. And they were very active in international cooperation. From other side, uh, we had uh, in our university in uh, this... Uh, really department of language because journalism and media in the beginning they were part of language department and we had there our professor and you I suppose remember him as you have been also a student <laughs> uh, professor Pegel his speciality was folklore he understood that uh, media and journalism they are really very important core of the cultural transmission. And though uh, he established uh, journalism uh, at first as some uh, speciality inside language, then as a special part, special curriculum, but what was important that he also was very much interested that we all will have some access to theories. He provided us with some references, and then we tried to get uh, these books, and and I made my... uh, uh, this BA diploma, what I mentioned on uh, Western theories of mass communication, already in in sixty six. What were the Western theories that uh, you had? No, then access? it was a classical structure of functionalism, and uh, we got access to 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 this literature through copies. Copies were sent from the West by friends. Uh, I, I then had also a friend in America, Estonian, who she was living in, in New York. She was working at Columbia University in the famous uh, the laboratory of applied social research where Lazarsfeld was working. And then we had access um, uh, to a library which was in Moscow. It was a very strange situation where in Soviet Union you were not allowed to, to read Western uh, scientific books, but they were all collected and, and preserved in special cellars of English language uh, books library. It was a special library. And uh, if you got the official letter from university that this or that student or professor needs uh, this and that books for his or her thesis. 
Then you was allowed to go to the cellar. There was a special officer who was watching you, what you are taking. Is it your speciality? What is the letter about? But you could read journals, for example, Journalist Quarterly or Public Opinion Quarterly or, or American General Sociology, because mainly they were American things, because Russia was very much always interested in America. And that meant that we could have access because we were very, very smart. We got letter from our university, for example, that this and that I then already was a young teacher. This is a teacher teaching critique of the Western theories of mass communication which means that if I am teaching critique, then I have to have access to everything. <laughs> and, and, and that, that was our say, trick. Uh, and uh, I have to say that what we were teaching our students in 1970s already was very much in line with uh, all things going on at the same time in, in American sociology, later on in European sociology, I mentioned Bourdieu and, and Habermas and so on. Our problem was that we could make a lot of research, and we did. We did. We started to do uh, research on media in uh, end of the 60s already, but we were not allowed to send a figure abroad. So we did it all for ourselves. <laughs> and uh, what we could do and what we really did, we established our own laboratory of sociology as, at first as a student even. We had a, a postgraduate student who was very active and then he established the first small research group and it was developed then in the sociological lab. And uh, we got uh, some, it wasn't private money, but say enterprise money because in Soviet Union there was this strange idea of scientific management. And for scientific management, all enterprises had to do the plan for social development. But in order to do plan for social development, they then could spend money on some research. And though we had contracts uh, and we made some research, uh, which could call industrial sociology maybe, about the job satisfaction and satisfaction with job environment. It gave us money to do other also academic research. Though in beginning of 70s, we had the sociological lab where in uh, the heydays we had uh, about 30 people working. We were then young students, postgraduate students, and then uh, young teachers, and that was the beginning. But then uh, it all uh, really ended with so-called Brezhnev stagnation. The lab was closed in 1975 with the help of KGB. And then uh, I found my shelter in journalism. Uh, the same professor, uh, our teacher, took me and then some other people, and we continued to make audience research uh, undercover and journalism. Uh, though it was, in this sense, in, in not normal surroundings, quite normal academic work, what we did. It was quite normal research work we were doing. And uh, we never, never uh, wanted to be part of politics because politics was this in Soviet politics. Uh, what we did really was kind of counter politics, and you can call it activism, because when we made our research, for example, of the newspaper audience, and uh, we didn't keep it for ourselves, uh, we went back to the um, editorial offices, we talked to journalists, we, we disclosed them the data, the data which really shouldn't be disclosed. 
but uh, as it was all in oral form, it's like uh, folklore. We just talked. <laughs> we cannot publish. And, and then, in this sense, we provided information which was unofficial, but at the same time truthful, uh, whereas they got official information which was not truthful. And though in this sense, it was informational activism in some way. <laughs> and that we were doing, that we were doing in, in many, many different spheres, and uh, that was the reason why uh, in uh, the end of 80s, when in Estonia started uh, kind of the popular movement for environment protection, which is called phosphorite war, because people started to fight against a big project of phosphorite mining in Estonia, which would pollute all Estonian groundwaters, then we already were involved in the environmental research. And, and then we were called as researchers to take part in this movement, again, to share information. But from that, uh, we also started to be more involved in the practices because uh, end of 80s, it was uh, the time of Gorbachev. And then the, the Popular Front was established also, it developed from this environmental movement, uh, other movements. And uh, in this way, I was elected in board of Popular Front and then from Popular Front, it was how I was elected to the, you mentioned the parliament in Moscow. It wasn't parliament, it was Gorbachev time. Gorbachev established some strange thing, which is not existing now and which didn't exist before. It was called People's Congress. And, and uh, that was uh, directly elected, uh, say, new kind of parliament. It was first time elected uh, not only among Communist Party, say, nomenclatura, but it was almost free elections. All popular movements could have the candidate lists. In Estonia, Popular Front, where I was then a member of the board, uh, really won the elections, and the same happened in Latvia and Lithuania, and in also in other parts, because popular songs emerged in the end of Gorbachev time also in Ukraine, in Belarus, in Moldova, in Leningrad, in Moscow, though we had a democratic faction in this uh, People's Congress, which was quite big. There were, for example, Yeltsin was a member of that and many other people from different parts, but uh, Baltic uh, representation was the strongest, it was the biggest and the best organized. Though in some sense we got leadership in all this faction. And we started to shake the structure, we started to shake the structure, we started to demand, for, exa demand, for example, that uh, the paragraph in the Soviet constitution, which constitutionally established that the only party is Communist Party and the highest power uh, in political life belongs to Communist Party, so-called paragraph 6, that it will be abolished. I became quite uh, popular on uh, TV because this um, Congress sitting, they were directly broadcasted. People in Russia, they were really excited. They couldn't imagine that something like that could ever happen. I was a person who, from the, the hall, I raised my hand and everybody could have the right to go to the microphone and ask a question. And I asked uh, from Gorbachev when he will abolish this paragraph 6 about the power of the Communist Party. <laughs> and it, it was kind of a, a shock. And, and though uh, there was time when the taxi drivers in Moscow recognized me <laughs> because of this question. Uh, 
in this uh, popular uh, congress uh, what we achieved was uh, that uh, the pact between uh, Soviet Union and uh, fascist Germany so called Hitler Stalin pact which really legitimized occupation of Estonia and Latvia Lithuania by Soviet army in 1940 west left us to to Soviets also partially because of that because we already were given to Russia, it was abolished, it was uh, declared illegitimate, illegal from the moment of signing, null and <laughs> void. And uh, that was the biggest achievement of our Baltic delegations, because a special commission was formed uh, by Gorbachev to uh, make investigation on this issue because Soviets denied that this kind of pact and the secret protocol giving uh, the power over, over Baltic to Soviet Union ever existed. But uh, we managed to prove that and then it was voted on Christmas Eve uh, um, uh, 1989. It was voted in this um, uh, Moscow uh, parliament and uh, that meant that uh, we were achieved what we wanted. Uh, in March 1990, we had elections in Estonia, um, uh, and we already uh, declared that Estonia, like Latvia, Lithuania, uh, as, as we were illegally occupied, we are restoring our independence. And the elections in March 1990 were, in this sense, uh, quite normal because we had many lists of candidates. And uh, already we had also many parties. I then was already in Social Democratic Party. We established that in, in February 1990. And uh, from this party list, I was elected then in Estonian uh, the so-called Supreme Council because we were officially or formal in Soviet Union, but our institutions also, including the Supreme Council, they were more and more really close to the normal Western kind of democracy. And though I was in that, and then we had this independence uh, official restoration in August 1991, and then I was elected uh, or, or really nominated as part of new first Estonian independent government as a social scientist, because of my students, because it was time when uh, we had very young people in politics because all these movements, they were very much consisted about, uh, from very young people. And a lot of my students were there. And uh, there was two guys. Uh, one was, they were about 26, 27. One was uh, Minister of Defense, other was Minister of Foreign Affairs. And, and, and they, they called me and said, oh, Professor, you know, we need somebody to become Minister of Social Affairs. We don't know anything about social affairs. You are a social scientist. You should know. Please come and help us. I thought, that I, I don't know much about social policy because in Soviet Union there wasn't social policy at all. But then I thought, yes, but maybe, yeah, I know a bit more. <laughs> and, and I said, oh, I, I, I cannot leave you alone, I, I will come. And uh, in this way, I become politician as such, because uh, earlier it was all combined with university work. But then there were two years in my life where I was out of university when I was in ministry, because when you are in ministry, you, you have work 24 hours, seven days. Uh, that was two two years I was not teaching. 
Do you think University of Tartu was unique in that kind of access to the, or, or maybe even interest, to the Western literature and to the kind of early 70s uh, um, ideas of wanting to know more about the mass communication uh, theories of the West? You know, uh, there was a time in, in the then Soviet Union It was starting with so-called Khrushchev's time, Khrushchev's saw after Stalin, uh, where young uh, philosophers, really, because sociology wasn't taught in Soviet universities. It was forbidden. It was the reactionary Western, I don't know, science. And, uh, but then there were a group of young, young uh, sociologists or young philosophers who started to be interested in sociology. In the beginning of the 60s, uh, Media and communication were in the core also of the Western sociology. If you look at the classical books, if you for, read, for example, Merton or Parsons and so on, Merton was himself dealing with uh, media, with audience. And uh, even it was said that, that media studies is like a crossroad for everybody who is interested in society. You have to go through media studies because in media you see reflection of everything what is going on in society. That was a reason, though, uh, as uh, from one side uh, we were in journalism, but from other side we were interested in uh, uh, sociology, in uh, social knowledge of this abnormal society we were living in. Uh, though we used media research uh, as a kind of keyhole uh, through which we can look into those layers of society which were normally hidden below all this official propaganda. For example, when we made audience research, then we, we for example, have a long list of all kinds of topics, issues, which could be reflected in the news. But uh, when we had these rankings of these topics, then uh, it was quite, uh, say, revealing about the interests and values of people. And uh, and so on, and and we made also some kind of ex- experiments of how people read uh, the newspaper, what they're interested in, how they interpret, and so on. It was really the way to understand what is going on inside society, and uh, we were not alone, because um, uh, as I said, that was a group of young um, philosophers in Moscow University, and also in Novosibirsk University. In Tartu, we had in this sense exclusive situation that uh, uh, the Baltic uh, part of Soviet Union, Estonia, Latvia, Lithuania, they had some kind of special status. Moscow wasn't uh, very much uh, involved uh, in the depths of society because of language barrier. And uh, from other side, uh, Baltic people and Baltic intellectuals themselves had very strong uh, sense of national, say, self-preservation. It was like uh, the bubble. We were living in kind of bubble. Uh, our own, say, official leadership uh, had ambiguous situation. They had to adapt to demands from Moscow, but they cannot lose also full support or trust among own uh, language community because everybody had families and friends and, and so on, small country, you know, everybody knows everybody. And uh, you, you, you could be the very important person somewhere in Communist Party committee in Tallinn, but if you have a grandmother, for example, somewhere in countryside, a 
and you're going to see your grandmother and the grandmother they say oh boy or girl what you're doing there I am sh- ashamed to, to talk to my friends and so on there was this kind of community life it, it was very critical concerning all this official politics so it was an ambiguous situation and for that also we had uh, some uh, islands of kind of free self-regulation. For example, we organized in our university, which was in language, Estonian language, uh, unofficial seminars on mass media sociology for whole Soviet Union, for all young rebellious researchers. We gathered in our um, sports center. It was in 60 kilometers from Tartu, from university. And we had a quite free talks uh, without any kind of protocol, without any kind of official citations. We discussed uh, structural functionalism, we discussed critical sociology, critical media theories, uh, uh, all those very, very uh, contemporary things. We were going along with what is going on outside. And then we published uh, stenograms. There were those discussions in our university. It is called Rotaprint. It was this kind of like hand printing. And um, it, maybe 100, uh, no, not 100, 49 copies, because 49 copies were magic uh, number. 50 copies were censored. All below 50 wasn't censored because it was like the, the some um, inner publication. So we published it in 49 copies, but those 49 copies were then copied and read quite, quite widely. Now uh, we had this kind of alternative sociology. When did you first come in contact with the sort of the other side of the Iron Curtain with the Western uh, colleagues with whom you suddenly could talk about uh, those issues without fears and... No, as I said, the first contacts with were Finnish uh, colleagues. We uh, had the first Finns coming over to Tartu in uh, 1972. They were from Tampere University. They, uh, Tartu was a closed city because we had a military airbase and no foreigner can stay in Tartu overnight. But they came, uh, they were brought to university for a couple of hours and then uh, it was in the rector's office. Uh, then I was invited to them. They said, oh, there are some young sociologists come and, and talk to them. And as I, I knew Finnish, I was also studying Finnish, not only in the everyday, but also scientific language. Then we can... Uh, talk and from that we established a contact they sent over the journals and then first time uh, I was out in 78 in Uppsala was the World Sociological Congress in Soviet Union there was uh, this kind of academic tourism academic tourist groups which were organized uh, under the special say format of Science Academy and from Estonia were included three or four persons and I was happy to be included in that and I was first time then on the World Sociological Congress in Uppsala in 78. Uh, as always on these congresses, uh, the book exhibitions, and you can buy the books, we had very, very, very small amount of money. I had $15. And for that $15, what I, I bought was uh, The Structures of the Life World by Alfred Schütz. And then it, it really was beginning of the research, the stream, what we have today, the phenomenological sociology. And then we were then reading this Alfred Schutz with all my students and discussing that and then developing our own ideas from that. Then it was a big day. And, um, and there also, the first time, I was following discussions between the Western uh, sociologists and I was very much astonished to, to listen how Western sociologists were discussing Marx. 
because for us Marx was something dirty and bad, because he was representative of official Soviet ideology. We didn't know Marx as sociologist. We know him as Marxist-Leninist uh, political philosophy. And then I discovered that, oh, Marx is part of the broader sociological thinking and, and, and Western sociologists are discussing, comparing Marx and Weber and so on. It was all new for us. So you've managed to be a global researcher and global scientist, despite the fact that the curtains were closed and the contacts were pretty much curbed for most of people. You see, we, 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 we were in this strange situation where like, you know, Alice behind the mirror, in the mirror land, because we could see and understand what is going on in the West, but West could not see us because as we were not allowed to publish anything, to send abroad any figure. It was strictly forbidden. Even when we had uh, in the uh, uh, beginning of it is very interesting comparative research on environmental sociology with Hungarians, with Budapest. And uh, there were three counterparts, Tartu University, Leningrad, then now Petersburg University, and Budapest. It all was nice until we worked on methodology, on questionnaire, or collecting data. But when to- data were there, we were not allowed to exchange the data with Hungarians. <laughs> so you had a comparative research project, which you never got to compare the d- yeah, results. Yeah, yeah that, was a, that was the issue. We could compare when we, uh, again, we uh, organized a seminar and we could talk and show each other, but we cannot send officially and we cannot publish officially comparative data. You told that you were moved to politics or you became involved in politics, mostly because of your academic background. Yes. How do you think that has uh, influenced your uh, your being a politician or you're still academic in just sitting in some political chairs? You see, uh, when I am in, uh, in my the political, say, surroundings, uh, talking to my party friends and so on, uh, I very often hear that they, oh, you're again talking like professor. <laughs> <laughs> and and it, it means two different things. One, that I am talking about two abstract and complicating issues. And uh, they say, oh, it will not sell. And the other is that I uh, am very much inclined to teach them. <laughs> but uh, now uh, I try to keep uh, separately my my life and then work as academic and my political life because uh, maybe it's different. Uh, in our university in Tartu, in Estonia in general, but in Tartu it's very clear that you leave your political sympathies behind the doors of university. I have to teach, because I am teaching uh, political communication. I have to teach students which could belong to any party. I, I am not asking, and that's normal, I'm not asking which party you prefer or, or where you belong to. I have to teach them, and I teach everybody. Uh, and for that also, I, I cannot, uh, in my lectures, prefer one party or ideology to other. I have to compare them critically, all of them, and teach students to, to make critical analysis, all of them. And um, I hope that I have been successful in that. But did you pick up political communication, teaching political communication, after your two years detour to ministry position? Yeah. You know, um, uh, uh, what I have done, really, and I have also uh, said it to my uh, colleagues in politics, that in some sense I am like an academic spine political environment, or not telling it more 
politely, I am doing so-called involved research. Uh, I am uh, doing some kind of uh, field work, uh, looking how, for example, the mechanisms of politics are working, how political communication is working, and I get a lot of examples from my teaching, a lot of uh, stories, a lot of cases uh, to analyze. Uh, it first began with this um, uh, Ministry of Social Affairs, uh, because, uh, as I said, in Soviet Union there was nothing like uh, social policy, and the university didn't teach social policy. It wasn't academic discipline. And when I returned from the ministry to university, uh, I didn't run for next elections. I returned in in '95 to university fully. Uh, then what I did, I established the chair of social policy and, and we developed a curriculum for social policy in university, which was really a new one then. Though I tried to use the knowledge I got from this ministerial experience. And the same uh, is true for political communication, because when I moved back from the social policy department to do media and journalism, then I started to teach political communication. Again, nobody was teaching that before. For me, it was uh, this is very interesting uh, to look at my experiences uh, from this academic side and to have the international comparison and look at the trends and discover that uh, what is always uh, the problem with Estonia, I suppose with all small countries, maybe also with Swedes, that we feel ourselves quite unique in the world. But then when you have your own experience and compare them with all kinds of international studies, you discover that, wow, we are not unique at all. <laughs> We are part of some much more global trends. We are in certain position there, and and uh, you can see how things are developing. And uh, I suppose that that's very important. That uh, I I really I'm convinced that uh, uh, in social sciences uh, it is very important to have some uh, some sense of realities, because without that, when I read some, not theories but uh, theoretical essays. There are a lot of theoretical essays written uh, by our colleagues, for example, about uh, this post-socialist transitions, uh, East and West and so on. And then uh, I feel that people who are writing have no clue about the, the realities uh, we really have. And I think that for social science, it's very important to, to have this kind of involvement in realities, but at the same time, preserve very clear distinction between the academic approach and uh, practical involvement. So to a certain extent, uh, for you, being in politics is like exiting academic ivory tower and being in, in the getting the real experiences. Yeah, in some sense. And, and even being in politics, uh, <laughs> I have been very often involved in uh, the semi-academic activities. For example, now it is very popular to create all kinds of strategies. Uh, and I have been in many, many working groups, uh, uh, for example, developing a strategy for education for Estonia, strategy for strategy for sustainable development of Estonia, uh, where you really can put two and two together to look uh, at the uh, the political implications and political implementation opportunities from one side and from other side bring in this academic knowledge and, and all this kind of comparative uh, picture and so on. And I suppose that that's very important that you have in social sciences also the opportunity, the channel to test uh, your theoretical ideas, but also to influence uh, what is going on in society. And in Estonia, uh, there are... Uh, 
uh, happily <laughs> is one uh, very specific kind of uh, academic or semi-academic uh, work. Uh, it is uh, Estonian Human Development Report. It was started in the beginning uh, by United Nations. It was in the early 90s when we were sort of developing country and then uh, United Nations came in and, and uh, established that and the group was established uh, by Tallinn University then. But uh, when we already were out of this stage and became quite solid, say, independent country, we preserved that not because of the United Nations, but because of ourselves, because it was a way how a social scientists working in different areas uh, had the kind of like uh, yearbook. So Estonian Human Development Report had become very popular. Um, every year or every second year, it has some general uh, core issue. And uh, people working in economic science, in sociology, in cultural uh, studies, media studies, geography, they write their parts of that. Uh, and um, it is also kind of the social prognostic work because we write about developments, uh, not in past, but what is going on and some prognosis for the future. And it is always quite critical. And uh, it, it, it got a lot of... Uh, attention also from journalists. So it is becoming like some kind of yardstick um, to compare the real politics and uh, what the social scientists are, are saying what is important. And uh, it's quite often we can, for example, uh, in some media articles read that, oh, already in human development reports, social scientists have said that this and that have to be changed in our society. Why they are not doing that? And I suppose that's uh, that's quite uh, quite important. Uh, this feeling that uh, research you are doing in some way it, it is corresponding to some needs of society. I think that's one of the sort of key issues uh, of of making yourself as a research feel valuable as well. Yes, yes, and especially if you are in uh, again I sp- speak about small countries like Sweden also is a small country or Estonia or Finland or the, all small countries where the people feel much more close to each other. The scientific community is not very high somewhere far away in closed universal campuses. Uh, there is much more um, interaction also between politicians and scientists and, and, and writers and, and uh, artists and so on. Though this intellectual community is much more integrated and it also has much more influence also to public opinion maybe. And it in this situation, to be social scientist uh, nowadays in Estonia, it's it's uh, it's um, more than only being academic. You said in 1995 you came back from the ministry and came back to the university, established the social policy department. And so, when did you go back to politics? Sort of, when did you decide to try to? Share yeah, your I, life? I have been oscillating between uh, uh, university and 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 parliament. Uh, because um, in in uh, elections uh, of 1999, I was invited by my party, which is Social Democratic Party, to run as a candidate in our city of Tartu, uh, because uh, there there was this feeling in society that that the changes are needed, and uh, and there was a real opportunity to to win elections. And then after some some reasoning, I, I agreed to run. 
and I was elected in parliament, but uh, I, I did not go to any kind of governmental work. I was in parliament, which gave me opportunity to continue teaching, because in uh, parliament, if you're there, you have time also for other things, as we have Friday free, <laughs> and one week in, in a month. And so I continued to teach political communication and to supervise students, and uh, it was this four years. And then uh, I returned again in university. I was in university, but uh, what was for me very interesting, uh, I was invited to be part of international body by Council of Europe, not European Union, but this big Council of Europe, uh, dealing with minorities. As we in our social research, we have been uh, also involved in minority research, minority issues. And I was invited as expert in the advisory committee for... Uh, the Framework Convention of Minority Protection in Europe. It, it is not permanent body. It is a body which is uh, comprised from academics, uh, mostly lawyers from different countries. There was, I suppose, 75% lawyers and 25% social science in this committee. And due to that, we were gathering in Strasbourg uh, for sessions uh, two, three times per year. For a week, we got reports from countries, but what was most interesting for me, uh, we had working groups for the countries, so we could travel and uh, check and look at the minority situation. And as I, as I said, I was also doing minority research in Estonia. Uh, then for me, it was very interesting. I was in working group for Denmark, for Sweden, for uh, Romania, for Slovenia and so on, though I could compare so-called old democracies and uh, so-called new democracies. And uh, what was for me very important that in this committee we didn't have double standards. We were as critical concerning old as new democracies. <laughs> so as a researcher, I just sort of noted myself down that you've been in environmental sociology, audience studies, uh, you looked at minorities, political communication, political sociology, cultural sociology. What else has been on your uh, academic radar? You see, uh, it's, it's not like that exactly, because maybe for me, always the main, main issue is uh, theory. If you have some kind of theoretical understanding or theoretical models, then you can test them or apply them in very, very different uh, areas. If you now look at sociology as a so-called um, middle-level sociology and then uh, the, the macro or high-level societal-level sociology, then I was always interested in macro-level looking at the, the, the type of society, the culture and society, maybe that because of my structuralist upbringing, <laughs> that I, I, I am very much interested in how society is functioning and what are these ingredients, what are, how different parts are, are influencing each other. Uh, now, um, in present time, theoretical interest mostly, uh, again, have uh, reached the micro level. When we started in uh, in 60s, then, uh, then there was this time where the Chicago school and the interactional school, it was like replaced by this macro level sociology. And now in, in this very long development, we are back in the micro level with a practices theory. But anyway, that's a, that's a problem, how society as such is working on different levels. That is my, my interest. And then for that, I can do research in different areas. But 
uh, the main interest is, is much more theoretical. So how society is functioning, uh, that has t- taken you to in and out of parliament. And uh, in uh, 2014, you were elected as a member of European parliament. Well, that was occasionally. <laughs> I didn't plan it. I was, I was peaceful in university. <laughs> <laughs> teaching and making research we had new grant new big big uh, research project uh, where i am part even now being in in brussels and then it happened and i am i'm close to retirement i i i am in retirement age so i i i wasn't dreaming about any kind of career anywhere and then uh, it happened uh, again like it is in politics it's happening that uh, the, my party, and I say my party because I have been in, in this n- beginning of 90s, I was president or chairman of the party. I feel some responsibility. It's my political child. Uh, and uh, and then it happened, and this my party, which now have young leaders, say my political grandchildren, from opposition was moved to government. And it was just before elections to Europe Parliament which meant that the young people who were, say, planned to be in the list for European Parliament, they were in government and they they could not run because they had to stay in government. And then the young party chairman came to me and, and we had very, very long talk. At first I said, no, 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 no. And, and then he talked and talked and talked. <laughs> And he used all kinds of arguments, emotional and personal and everything. And then I say, oh, no, then I can try, but I'm sure that I will not be elected. I'm out of politics so long and nobody remembers me. And then I was in the list. And we have open list for European elections. We have open list. Although so this person who has the most of votes is moving to the top and becoming, becoming a member. And then, then it happened, for some reasons, that I got the most votes. <laughs> then I had no way to say no. I had to go. <laughs> that was that was almost catastrophe for me. Uh, but um, but I am really happy that I am there because uh, again I have a new level of experience for my political communication. Now I am uh, developing the, the the new say topic in political communication, European communication, and um, uh, also in my course for the second year students, the best of the class I invite to Brussels on the last seminar. <laughs> So we end the course in Brussels and and part of them become interested, I hope. And that's very important. For example, Estonia has a EU presidency next year. And and already from our department uh, in our communication strategy course, uh, yes, last year there was some group who was preparing European communication for Estonia. This year will be the group. I invite them to Brussels. I I train them there. So I combine again the teaching and uh, and, uh, the political work. But from other side, what is important? And that was for me quite unexpected. In European Parliament, uh, uh, you have to work in some committees, yeah. And I am in committee for human rights and political uh, hu- political liberties and human rights, Liber Committee. 
In this committee also one topic is uh, the data, data protection because it's a fundamental right. When in the beginning uh, new members uh, were asked which uh, report they want to have, then uh, it happened that I got data protection. Uh, no, it, it doesn't happen quite occasionally. I was interested in that because uh, all my all my life dealing with data from other side, with data processing, data gathering, and so on, and being sometimes very angry with these guys from data protection. <laughs> I really was interested what is all about that. And, and it was very interesting, the more than a year of uh, discussions, because we're in the, uh, in the stage where the draft already was ready in previous legislature. It was uh, the, the text which was ready for um, uh, negotiations between Commission, Council and Parliament. And I was in negotiating team as a shadow rapporteur. And uh, uh, when we were preparing the, the, this uh, text for these negotiations, and we went through all articles, article by article, discussed everything anew. And uh, for me, it was very interesting because mostly in this group were people who were not dealing nor with communication, information society, neither with any kind of data collection. They were lawyers. Though I brought this kind of knowledge from the field in these discussions. And, and uh, that was very exciting to, to see how these things are interacting. How really in, in this field, which is so fastly developing, where you really um, cannot look around the corner, you don't know what will happen here um, in next year or next five years. In this very slow legislative work, really you have to foresee that uh, things you put here in this uh, directive or regulation will not become obsolete tomorrow. And, and uh, then uh, from that we came to very, very abstract theorizing about the nature of data, nature of communication, what is here, this, what is not changing, which is universal, what is that, what is technology bound, uh, how to make this legislation technology neutral. And, and, and here, my knowledge of the field, I suppose it was really very much useful. So when you said uh, you, you had to go outside from academic ivory tower to real field of politics, then in the politics you bring again, the real field. Again, professor, nothing to be done. Again, professor, also there. So you bring in the <laughs> experience of the field to the, to the politics. Yeah. But how, or how is Brussels? Oh, Brussels is awful. Awful. I, 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 am, I am spending there as much as needed, but as short time as possible. I'm traveling every week. Every Monday, I'm going seven o'clock on the plane and starting at nine o'clock. And then on Thursday evening at six o'clock and go to the airport, to the plane and back to Tallinn. <laughs> and from Tallinn to Tartu. Because for me, Brussels is not place to live in. It's just a working place. And, and uh, as the Europe, so-called European village or European institution, they are not part of this uh, central town. They are a special part of the city. And uh, we have this huge house of European Parliament, which is really like big, big glass bubble. I even don't feel that I'm in Brussels. 
I'm in somewhere in global space, <laughs> you know, European space, <laughs> and and, uh, and I don't try to 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 have any kind of uh, so embeddedness there, because. Uh, I feel that that could be even dangerous because I see there are people who are mostly really members of parliament are traveling like me. If you look at the airport, uh, then you see the hundreds, hundreds of people. If you look at the, our parliament house, Monday morning people are coming with luggage and uh, on uh, Thursday they are going with this trolley and, and they're going to the airport. But if you have been there five years and 10 years and 15 years, uh, then uh, you could become some kind like uh, an alien, you know, <laughs> looking at things on the earth from very, very big distance. And, and really, I don't like uh, to become like that. So the parliament is uh, too big and too isolated or? It is just, uh, you say, parliament is living its own life. Because in parliament, the time is different. The parliament time is very slow. Uh, in order to make decision there, you have to go through tens and hundreds of discussions. If you understand that there is 28 countries, now it will be 27, but still we have 28 countries. 28 countries, 28 national delegations divided in uh, how many we have? Nine political groups. So 9 to 28, you understand how, how big is diversity. And you have to reach some kind of, you, you, you have to vote, you have to have majority. And that means that in some committees, some topics, uh, they are on the table years uh, before there could be any kind of majority vote achieved. For example, uh, I was uh, astonished in our committee for human rights the, there is an anti-discrimination directive, and we all understand what, what does it mean. Anti-discrimination, it, it is a gender discrimination, it's a minorities, it's a disabled people, but it's also the, the sexual minorities. It was, when it was first time uh, in my being there, in the, the agenda, the committee sitting, then my the more experienced uh, colleagues started their speeches, for example, when seven years ago we discussed this text. <laughs> so, so it, it had been circulating there through different legislations, through different years, not coming to a situation where the vote could be done. Then it stacked. Then there are things which have been stacked, then come again, and then with new commission, for example, again pushed out and then uh, bring in. For example, there is a maternity directive. Uh, for, for us uh, to have the quite solid maternity leave and maternity support is normal. It's normal for Sweden, it's normal for Estonia, but it's not normal for some European countries. And these countries are blocking this directive. And they are blocking it and blocking and blocking for years. Though you see uh, from inside how this is very complicated uh, structure of decision making. In Parliament we have majority vote, but in Council they have consensus vote. Not vote, but consensus. If one or two countries are again, then it's blocked. And, and 
people are asking me also now why decisions are not coming we all are waiting why for example all this refugee crisis it cannot be solved because there is no no decision made everybody understands that is a crisis but there is no mechanism for crisis management inside this system because the system was created for slow peaceful happy development and uh, and uh, thus i suppose this experience for me is, is it's very educating very educating nobody can imagine that looking from outside to these glass bubbles what is going inside in it is everyday hot discussions it is really work we are working from nine o'clock in the morning until nine o'clock in the evening every day in discussions, in rewriting, amending, trying to have some result in, in tens and tens of topics. And and it is really, really difficult. So what are you planning to do next? Oh, I have a book coming out <laughs> next week. <laughs> next week? Yeah. What is it about? About all these things we are discussing with you here today. <laughs> Even more about... about, uh, about uh, the book is called uh, My Century, really Marius' Century, um, and it's about uh, the really the end of 20th century or about 20th century because I'm uh, feeling or I, I'm convinced that that century is much longer unit than 100 years. Century starting earlier and is ending later than the numbers are showing. And uh, more longer term? No, I continue to 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 work in Parliament and and uh, a bit teach, uh, but uh, you know I am dreaming about some some time when I can read the books I like. Not only I must, uh, where I can go to some countries, not for conference, but just as a tourist, <laughs> or when I can spend in my uh, summer house uh, all those nice days in June where we have exams in university. <laughs> uh, though uh, I am in this sense uh, really, really, really at last planning to retire. <laughs> so I hope that the retirement will be as golden and as colourful as the life has been. Yeah, no, you never know, really. All, all my experience showing that you can plan a lot of things, but, but at last you're doing things you maybe didn't imagine. So let's see. Thank you very much. <laughs>